you have your Bibles, could you grab them this morning? I'm going to uh, have my wife, actually, this is Lisa, just so I'll know. Um, I'm going to have her just open up this time before I preach. I just want to read God's Word before I mess it up, possibly. Just for us, just to read it and enjoy just hearing God's Word read over us. And so if you could go ahead and open your Bibles to John 15, and I'll, I'll let her uh, read the passage for us. Good morning. We're going to start in uh, verse 18 of chapter uh, 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's just pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, and thank you that we can read it and we can know the truth about Jesus, and I just pray this morning, Father, this is a a difficult side of Jesus that we're going to look at, and so I just pray that we would leave with joy, though, that we'd leave with joy knowing we saw a side of Jesus that we desperately need, and Father, I believe our world needs to see about who Jesus is, so thank you so much for that, in your precious name, amen. All right, have a seat. Um, how's everybody doing? I'm good. Everybody okay? Here's where we're uh, we're at. For those of you that maybe uh, are either new to Cornerstone or never been here before, or anything, um, we've been studying through the Book of John, and our whole heart is is that we would understand the Jesus that John presents to the world. This guy that walked with Jesus about two thousand years ago, mainly because. One of the things that as I was kind of prepping to teach the book of John, I realized is that in a lot of ways, we have a wrong view of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, as I've been studying and teaching John, God has had to correct my view of who Jesus really was. And it's been absolutely life-changing for me personally, just to see these glimpses of who he was and what he said and how he lived his life. And so that's what we're doing. And where we're at right now in John 15, so if you got your Bibles, again, we're, we're, that's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's Bibles in the back. Um, I don't know where my lovely assistant, Greg Burkhardt, is, but um, he's, he's somewhere around here. So if you need a Bible, um, that good-looking man will be happy to, to get you a Bible. But uh, with it, what we want you to do is, to, is for you to have your own Bible and for you to learn. Like, I, I want to make sure that you never think that you're not supposed to study the scripture for yourself. I don't want to ever be a church that way. 
I don't want you to think that somehow we kind of have a, a, maybe a Catholic feel where I'm the priest coming up and telling you what you're supposed to think. Our job, my job is not to tell you what to think, but how to think about who God is as you read the scriptures. It's very important. And so with it in John 15, Jesus is getting to the last few hours he's going to have with his friends. And in this time, you can just tell everything in him. He wants to glorify God. You can tell that by the prayer he has in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can tell it by his high priestly prayer. He's about ready to pray in John 17. Everything in him, he wants to make sure that he glorifies God. But he also is having this last moment with just his fellas. It's just him and the 11 that are left. Judas is now gone, and he's telling them these important things before he leaves because it's so amazing. Here's Jesus And he's loving them to the end, passionate about them. And so what you see in it is that he's telling them the truth. They're getting anxious about this. They're not sure what to do with what he's telling them. And so he's trying to encourage them and strengthen them as he walks along. But he's also seeking to be very honest with them because he's telling them, I'm getting ready to leave and I'm passing the baton to you. And I'm now going to be passing it to you. You're going to actually do greater things than me as you take the message that I'm going to give you and spread it out over the entire planet. And all of us in this room are sitting here knowing Jesus because those 11 guys didn't fail. That's amazing. But in this, in fifth, chapter 15, the first thing he's going to tell them is about as he leaves, they need to maintain their relationship with Jesus. And the word that he uses is so crucial in 15, 1 through 11 is this idea of abide. Guys, stay in me, know me, love me, walk with me. Don't ever get detached from me is his idea that even though I'm leaving and the promise of the Holy Spirit is, is I need you to stay attached to me and love me and walk with me. But he also wanted them to know, and especially when you get into 15, 12 through 17, is this idea that now he's going to say, but he's going to talk about their relationship as fellow believers. And the key word for that one is love. He said, the mark of you guys is is that I want you to passionately care about one another and love one another, be honest with one another, care for one another. He's very concerned, not only about this vertical relationship between he and them, which he calls them to abide, but he says, it's very important now that you guys also love one another. Why? Because where we're going to get today, he's going to then be honest with them and say, there's this key relationship also that we have with the world. And the word that you're going to see all the way in 1518 through 164 is this word hate. He's going to be honest with them and say, guys, as I leave, this is what your relationship is going to be like with the world. Not that they're going to hate the world, but that the world is going to hate them. And he's sitting around talking to them. If you can just imagine for the second, he's looking at them and going, because y'all are going to love me and abide with me and y'all are going to love each other. But then y'all are going to be hated by the world. And oh, by the way, some of you might even lose your heads, literally. I can just imagine the guy sitting there going, what? And so Jesus is then going to explain to them what's going on. Because in their heads, they must have been thinking, wait, we're going to love you and we're going to love them. And they're going to reject us. And Jesus' point is saying to them, that's what's going to happen. And the way he's now going to walk through this to explain it to him is so crucial. He's going to explain to them, why is the world going to hate you? And the very first thing he lays out, look down in verse 18. He's going to tell us the very first reason why the world is going to hate you. He says this, look at verse 18. 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So why is the world going to hate them? Jesus says, because they hated me first. And he even uses that word no. Does everybody see that little word no in verse 18? It's this word gnosko. The New Testament was written in Greek, and that word no means you've experienced it. You saw it. You've watched as I've gone around and taught, and I've been there. You've seen how people treated me. Guys, they hated me first. Now, a lot of times we see Jesus in a certain way because he did come on a mission of love, didn't he? You get to John three sixteen, no doubt about it. For God so what? Loved the world. He came on a mission. He came to present to this group of people that God loves you and adores you. He was crucial about that. In fact, it also says he came full of grace. And in fact, people came to him. He was like a magnet in so many ways. But he wasn't just full of grace. He was also full of truth. He came and he didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He told people what they needed to hear. One of the things I love about my wife is she is phenomenal at telling me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. I'm going to go home today. I'm going to go, baby, how'd it go? Did I change the people's lives or what? And she's going to look at me and she's going to tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. Why? Because she loves me. Loves me. Now, she might code it in grace, but she's going to be honest with me. See, the moment that Jesus came into this world, in a lot of ways, he came in with a death wish. From the very start, when the angel talked to Mary, he promised her, Mary, this boy right here is going to break your heart and cause division. When Zechariah held him, he said, oh my goodness, this young one is going to divide like we've never known. In John 2, he comes in, turns water into wine. Right after that miracle, he goes into the temple, he braids together cords, and he drives out people away. He says, this is my father's house, and you're treating it like a den of robbers. And we get into John 5, and he takes it a step further. He begins to tell them over and over what they need to hear. And so after healing a guy on the Sabbath, the people begin to plot, how are we going to get rid of this Jesus? John 7, he begins to get this widespread reputation of people wanting to kill him. John 8, they start calling him names. They call him a demon-possessed, half-breed bastard. Never been called that before. But then right after that, just four verses, they plot again. They take up stones to kill him. Chapter 10, it says they surrounded him and they're almost ready to kill him and he slides out. See, this idea of Jesus that sometimes our world presents, isn't it like this 70s Jesus with like the wavy hair where Jesus like walks in, you know, like this and he's like, Jesus saves. Are you kidding me? Think about it. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he probably has about 100 people left. See, the reason it was, though, is not because he wasn't a gracious God. It wasn't as if he wasn't loving. But there is something about honesty that drives people away, isn't it? And look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Go to John 3. Look at verse 17. Let me show you what I mean. We love verse 16, but we always forget to keep reading. When's the last time somebody sat behind goalposts and put, John 3, 17? This doesn't happen. <laughs> Wouldn't that be hilarious to see? <laughs> 3, 17 through 21, you know. 
<laughs> Look at verse 17. Oh, gosh, this could be an interesting morning. Everybody buckle in. Here we go. Here we go. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Man, praise God. Grace. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Grace. Uh Uh-oh, truth. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Why did they reject him? Because the light came into the world and everyone scattered. He told them the truth, but they didn't want to hear it. Now, this becomes so crucial in how he's setting himself up. He really wants them to understand, guys, you are like me. And so you got to understand why they rejected me at first. In fact, even his definition of the world, you got to understand this. When he came in to talk to the world, that little word world down there, he's not talking about like the earth. The earth isn't evil and it's got this mind and, it, you know, the, the world is going to hate, the earth is going to hate us. He's talking about people that are in the line of Adam and Eve. Since the moment that they fell away, since the moment that they sinned, he said, Groups of people have been in rebellion against me, and I love them, and I care about them, but they have to understand the problem is them. And so I came, and I told them the truth. They are in sin, and they're in desperate need of me, but the people, the idea is that they rejected it. It's a world that he talks about in John 8 that's headed by Satan, that everything is against God, and he said, I came, and I told them the truth, and they rejected me. Notice a couple pages back to John 1.10. You can kind of see this. John is writing about Jesus, and he said, Jesus, he was made, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Go back to John 15. Look at verse 22. He's going to clarify more why. Why did they hate him? Look at verse 22. He says this. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now, he's not saying that somehow people, he came and therefore they became guilty. In other words, he came and revealed that they were guilty. Okay, is everybody with me? They weren't sitting there in absolute innocence and all of a sudden Jesus comes and it's like, oh no, now we're guilty. The idea is they were guilty and when he came, he revealed that they were guilty. But now he says they have no excuse for their sin because whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, if they had not seen how I loved and how I lived and how I cared for them, if they had not seen my miracles, you're right. They may have not known the guilt of their sin, but now they have seen and they have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. John 7, 7, he tells them that the world hated him because he testified about them, that their works are evil. Jesus made them absolutely aware of their sin. And it's so simple on one level. He came in and he lived a certain life and people hated it. 
I don't know if you've ever been that person that people shun away from, but I remember when I first came to know Jesus Christ, I was so excited about Jesus. I come in and, and God was beginning to change me. I no longer wanted the things that I used to have before I came to know Jesus. I lived in a house with six other guys in college. And I remember as a couple of them received Jesus, but I remember after a while, and I, and I don't think I was a jerk, I would come into my house and it was almost like you could see everybody go, oh no, here's Todd. <laughs> Why? Jesus was telling us, this is going to be the pattern that you're going to face. I'm going to live a life, and how I lived my life convicted people. It convicted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It convicted the people that saw me, because I lived a life that confronted them. I hated Jesus, not because he was a jerk, but because he came in and he lived differently. He loved them. He told them they were in rebellion against God. Sometimes I always tell people, you know, we always hear, man, just, just love people. Let me tell you something. If you love people and don't tell them and they're in rebellion against the holy God, you don't love them. And when Jesus, you could just see this, when he, when he turned the spotlight on them, they writhed and they twisted and they rebelled and they squirmed. Because the whole thing they were dealing with was not necessarily him. They were dealing with the fact that they were sinners in need of him. I don't even remember when this happened. But when I was a kid, I went to my grandparents' church, and this missionary came in and told the story. I don't know if it was their story or somebody else's story. But the story was about a guy that was a missionary that went into Africa, and he was kind of sitting down studying, and all of a sudden he found out that the village witch wants to talk to him. So he's thinking, this is great. I'm going to be able to sit down and talk with the village witch. It almost sounds like a, a bad Monty Python story. But um, I just thought about that. So he's, he's sitting there, and in comes this woman to talk to him. And as they're interacting, he notices that over his right shoulder, she keeps looking, and he, every time she looks and sees it, she gets angry. And he kind of looks back, and he's wondering, why in the world? And finally, he looks at her, and he goes, what's wrong? And she goes, what's that? And he goes, that's a mirror. She goes, can I trade you for it? So the guy's thinking, no way, yeah. It's good inroads into the people. I'm going to hang with the peeps. So he trades with her, and she takes a look in the mirror one more time. And the thing about it was, is he said she was just hideous. Stuff coming out of her nose and her ears and hair all over the place. And every time she would look at herself in the mirror, she would see how ugly she was. And as soon as she did it, she looked at it one more time, squirmed, and crashed the mirror. See, when Jesus Christ came into this world, he was a mirror that was showing people who they were. And what happened is they would see themselves in that and how hideous they were. And either, number one, what was going to happen is they were going to then repent and deal with the ugliness of who they were. But you know, on the end of it, they grabbed the mirror and they dashed it. He's saying, guys, this is why I came into the world. But he also wanted them to know it wasn't just because they, they, they hated him first. He wanted them also to know, look down in verse 19. Not only did they hate him first, but look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's looking at these guys and he's saying, because I have taken you out of the world, that's why now the world's going to hate you because the promise all throughout the book of John is is that as I take you out of the world, John 3, you will be born again and I'm going to make you different. And the idea is different to start to look like Jesus. 
And he's saying that the more you begin to look like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, the world is going to hate you just like they hated me. I can just imagine the guy sitting there going, whoa, time out. But at the end of the day, what he's saying is, is that sure, if you were still the world, the world would like you, wouldn't they? I always hear people say, oh, like Christians will say, you know, sometimes I just like hanging out with the world, they accept me more. Well, no, duh. Man, when you're in sin, of course, you know, you come in and go, I'm in sin, and the world's like, yay, welcome. No, duh. Man, you get into a group of people like this, and yeah, I get it. Some Christians are jerks. I'm not, a, I understand that. But this group of people will be a mirror to you and show you you're in sin. But that's given to us so that we might see our need of Jesus. That's why. Let me just be clear about this, what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we as Christians are supposed to be picking fights. Jesus wasn't calling us to pick fights. The war that he was calling us to launch on this world is that even when they hate us, we are to return that hatred with what? Love. And he was declaring a love war. We're to act different, walk differently. We're not to get caught up in culture issues. We're not to get caught up in political issues. We're not to get caught up in all these other things just to try to get ourselves persecuted. I remember one time I was sitting around a group of guys and like, we need to pray for persecution in the United States. And I go, why? I go, where in the Bible does it ever ask us to ask for persecution? I said, it does ask us, though, to be the men and women that God designed us to be that look like Jesus. That's what it calls us to be. I think at the end of it, I just say this to you, the Bible never asks us to be jerks. And sometimes I look at Christians and I just go, man, quit being an idiot. They're trying to pick fights. Man, in Romans 12, 19, it has this amazing passage. Paul's writing them and he says, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Even in 1 Peter 3, turn your Bibles there. Just, you're going to have to go almost to the end of the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter 3. Let me, just, let me show you what I'm talking about. 1 Peter 3. And look at verse 13. Peter's writing to this, this Christian scattered all over the Roman world at the time. And he says this, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. I love that. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him apart as who he is. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, now here, listen to me closely. He doesn't say, do it being a jerk. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There is no doubt about it, and everyone's got to get this in their heads. You can be the most incredible follower of Jesus and do not get in your head that you're not going to face hatred and persecution. You are. 
In fact, the way I would say it is, is that our lives are an attack on the world system. When we live like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, we're taking what God meant and we're bringing it to the world and how things are supposed to be enjoyed, how he calls us to, and it confronts the world. So take, for example, if you value deeply within your heart being sexually pure, You will confront a world that takes what God had designed to be so good and such an incredible part of marriage, and you will confront the world with the reality of how they treat sex like it's never intended to be created or treated. In fact, there was a person in the early church in the third century, Agatha, an early follower of Jesus Christ. She was a virgin. She was somebody who had never been married before. One of the leaders of that area saw how beautiful she was, and he said, you know what, I'm going to take her, and I'm going to uniquely violate her. I'm going to make her one of my own kind of concubines, and she refused to be his concubine. He got angry with her, and his anger with her then, he began to persecute her. And here's some of the things that happened to her. It just blew my mind. He said, fine, if you don't want me, and he scourged her and said, now do you want me? And she said, no. Then he burned her with irons, and he said, now do you want me? And she said, no. He turned her over to a brothel, hoping that she would in some way get beat up and abused by this. But again, she still said no. He put hooks in her flesh, and still she said no. He had her lay naked upon a bed of hot coals and glass, and still she said no. And at that point, she still wasn't dead. And so he said, just lock her up in prison. And she slowly died from exposure to her wounds. But still she said what? No. The other idea is if you embrace the idea of self-control when eating in our culture. I've been convicted by this one. Man, our culture is gluttonous. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a sin. And and here's the deal. I just heard this. Christians are 50% more likely to be fat than non-believers. True. Just came out. (laughs) Swear. Man, we love our fellowship, don't we? (laughs) Jeez. And if you choose, though, instead to restrain yourself and sow self-control around food, you are going to convict not only unbelievers, but the church. <laughs> if you choose to live simply because you desire the money God has given you to be used not for better things like luxury cars or luxury houses or luxury meals, you're going to confront the folly of luxury. If you take steps of faith, you'll expose those that live by sight and not by faith. If you choose to walk humbly with God, you're going to confront those that are in pride. If you're prompt and thorough, I got this from somebody else, which I'll tell you what, man. We don't call each other enough on this one. If you're prompt and thorough in your interactions with people, you will deal a blow to those who are lazy and careless. If you decide that all, not all debt is good debt, your life will be an attack on people's lack of patience in owning things. I'll tell you what, one of the things that scares me so much for the church is the way we've bought into spending tens of thousands of dollars on Christian colleges in the United States. I think Satan loves that. We get these kids massively into debt, tens of thousands of dollars into debt. They are of no use to the kingdom. And then a kid that decides to go to a college that doesn't cost as much, we look down upon him. It should be the opposite. We speak with gentleness and compassion. You will convict those that are insensitive. 
If you use words in such a way that they honor God and build up people, you will confront those that use their tongue for cheap laughs or quick revenge. If you're serious and sincere, you will make the flippant look superficial. And if you passionately pursue Jesus, you will expose the worldliness of those around you. Again, I'm not saying be a jerk. But the reality is when he talks about it in chapter 16, verse 8, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will uniquely convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In fact, Paul says this in, in 2 Timothy. He says, all who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus will eventually be what? Persecuted. See, the next part of now what Jesus is going to talk about is, is that eventually what's going to happen is this hatred is going to need to be vented in some kind of a way. It's going to boil up and it's going to sit there and it's going to stew, but eventually what's going to happen is that hatred is going to move into what he's going to call persecution when we get down into verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. That's from verse 13 when he was talking about washing feet. Now he's going to take and he's going to apply it this. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's saying at some point now, the hatred is going to boil over. And just think about it. The guys had no clue about this. But in a mere hours, all of that hatred that had been boiling over in Palestine at that time was going to come to a head. And all of that hatred was going to be poured out in persecution upon Jesus. And what was going to happen? All of them were going to do what? But Jesus looks at him. Look at chapter 16. Look at verse 2. He says, guys, but here's what's going to happen to you. He prophesies this. They'll put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's actually offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. I can just imagine John sitting there at this moment as he's writing scripture, being led along by the Holy Spirit. He must have just put down his pen and went, no way. Jesus promised us this was going to happen. At this point of the 11 guys around Jesus in John 15, John is the only one left. He was alive when all 10 of these others had lived out the reality of 16, 2 through 4. See, it all started in Acts 2, man. They did promise him. And they came in and they began to preach the gospel. And in Acts 8, the first Christian, the hate finally boiled over and they stoned Stephen. Little did they know, though, that when they stoned Stephen, and the next part of verse 20 is that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they what? If they obeyed me, they will also obey you. Man, after Stephen dies, do you know 2,000 people came to know Jesus? Philip, one of the apostles, was crucified. They crucified him merely to mock Jesus. Matthew, the writer of the first gospel in your Bible, was bludgeoned with a dull axe. James, the brother of Jesus, was beaten. Then they stoned him. And to finish him off, they grabbed a large rock and dropped it on his head and dashed his head to pieces. Matthias, the first apostle they added in Acts 1, was stoned beheaded, and they took his head, and they put it on a post. Andrew, I love this one. Oh, gosh. Andrew, they purposely didn't beat. 
Usually what they would do is they would beat somebody and they would really harm them so that they would die fast in crucifixion. But they didn't do this to him. And they crucified him so that he hung. Instead of for just a few hours, he hung for over two days. But you know what Andrew did for the whole two days? He preached the gospel and people are coming to know Jesus at the cross. Talk about an altar call. Mark was torn in pieces by a mob. Bartholomew was beaten, then crucified and finally beheaded. Thomas was run through with a spear. Luke was hung by strangulation. Peter, father of Jesus, he refused to be, die like Jesus did, so they said fine, and they crucified him upside down. James, John's brother, if you can just imagine thinking about your own brother. James was falsely accused by a leader within the community that he was. And so the false accuser came before the king and brought the testimony against him, against James. And he knew it was true. And the king looked at him and he says, do you have anything left to say? And he looked at his accuser and he said, yes, I do have some things to say. And he began to preach the gospel to him, calling this man out on his sin, on his reprobation, on the fact that he was lying, calling him to repent in Jesus. And the guy that accuses him at that particular moment repents, comes to know Jesus. Jesus, and both of them had their heads cut off that day. Wow. John, they tried to kill him. He was a guy that got boiled in oil and left for dead. They tried to poison him, and they left him for dead. And John's probably sitting there going, man, what else are they going to try to do to me? But God kept him around to write this because they needed to know who Jesus was. But it wasn't just men, there was Perpetua, a pregnant woman in the third century. She also refused to renounce Jesus Christ. And they used to do this, especially to women that were pregnant, Christians that were pregnant, or women that had kids. They would take the woman, and they would also sometimes take their children, and they would throw them to the beast, number one, to to try to dissuade Christian women from following Jesus, but number two, to dissuade Christian women from having children. Nero killed thousands of Christians, but here's the kicker. In the last 100 years, we have lived in the greatest persecution of any time on this planet. We're living in it right now. Yeah, we're not feeling it, but let me tell you something. Our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, they are experiencing this. And Paul said, when your other brothers in Christ experience this, you're not to now go, oh, I wish I had it. That's stupid. Paul says, pray. He's calling us to pray, to fervently pray, God, help them as they go through this persecution. Help them to be the people that follow you with all their mind, all their heart, all their soul, all their strength. Help them to stand firm in the midst of this, God. Call God's people to stay there. But how are they going to do it? Look at verse 26 of chapter 15. Look at this. You've got to see this. Next week, Terry's going to unpack this. We're going to bring the mouth from the south up here to unload this for you. Look at verse 26. How are they going to do it? When the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, love that, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See, we always wonder, how could I ever handle that? Let me tell you something. You can't, but God can 
How can I handle persecution? How can I handle people rejecting me? Christians spend so much time worrying about rejecting that we forget that who lives inside of us is the God of the universe. And we think we're not going to be able to handle it. Anytime these people, and all throughout the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is all about these people that are a testimony to us that are followers of Jesus. How will you be able to handle it? Because God will empower you to handle whatever comes your way. But let me shoot really straight with you. In 2 Timothy 3, it talks about the fact that this world is going to be falling apart in the end times. And let me tell you something, the world is falling apart. And so the question is, why aren't we experiencing more persecution in the U.S.? Let me just give you a few reasons of why I think we're not experiencing persecution. The first is this. I just think flat out, God is sovereign. Our job is not to seek persecution. Our our goal, our job, the Holy Spirit's going to enable us to live godly lives. It's up to God how that hate boils over. So in other words, we're not experiencing it because, number one, God is sovereign. Number two, I think he doesn't do it because we live in a particular nation in which we were formed by groups of people that left religious persecution. And so built into the fabric of this particular nation was this idea of freedom of religion. So our our country has always always had within it this value of sticking up for those and not creating a, a religion that enforces upon you what you're supposed to do. But let me also tell you something in this. We are no longer any vestiges whatsoever we had a Christian nation. Get that lie out of your head. And I promise you that as things move along, and I don't know when because we never know when things are going to happen, eventually it's going to fall. Any mask whatsoever in this country will eventually fall, and we will, if not us, our children, might be facing the reality of persecution in a way that we've never understood. If you think about it now, who are the only people it's okay to laugh about? Christians. The only ones. I'm not Christian. I'm not Jack Van Impey or John Hagee, but I'm just telling you, eventually these things are going to happen. And I look around this room, and I'll tell you what: some of you are already experiencing a form of persecution. Some of you, how you deal with your spouses that might be unbelievers, it's hard. You're trying to love on them, and man, you just feel the heat of it all the time. Your kids, your parents, your friends, your employees, your employers—all these different things. I get it. We're experiencing it. But I think also the reason that perhaps we don't feel as much hatred in our world as we ought to is the fact that we are not willing to confront the world nose to nose and call it what it is. I think the church has become a collection of wusses. I do. I think we need to have a man-up moment in the church and woman-up. I just have this reality that as I've been praying about my own self and about who we are, and again, please hear me, I don't want a collection of jerks. I don't want us to be arrogant. But man, deep inside of it, if we really have the Spirit of God in us, we will be powerful in our testimony. We'll tell the truth to the world. And you know this, when you tell the truth to the world, what are they going to do? They are going to get angry. I tested it on Friday. I was in a Quiznos over in the valley, and I'm like, hmm. I see a guy across. I looked at him, and I go, hey, you have a second? And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure. What's up? What's up? What's up? You know, I'm like, not much, 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 much. <laughs> um, uh, so I go, I go, you know, do you have any thoughts on God? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, all kinds of ways to God. I go, what if I told you you're wrong? He goes, I would tell you we're done talking. <laughs> 
and we were done. <laughs> Why? He doesn't want to hear it. Now, I hope I wasn't a jerk. Now, I just mocked him. <laughs> Father, forgive me. But if we're honest with people, they're not going to like it. And we need to be honest with people. Jesus Christ didn't leave us here to bide our time. And I'll tell you what, one of the greatest hindrances to the light of Jesus Christ impacting this world is we spend too much time in here acting like Christians and not enough time like out there acting like Christians. And one of the reasons we are seeking as a church to do what we're doing as far as how we're forming people into this grow, live, display, and mobilize is because I will not pastor a church where we sit in here and we go, Ah, Jesus! You know, we all kumbaya together and then we leave and we live like hell. Skip that. And I want a church empowered by the Spirit where we find joy like we've never known because we're empowered by God. And when we come back in here, we celebrate God and we go back out again like they did in Acts 4. And we tell the story of Jesus, even at great cost to ourselves. That's what Jesus Christ is calling us to do. Look at verse 21. This is key for you to understand. All these things they will do to you, look at this, On account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. They're not mad at you, and they're not going to persecute you. Jesus says, ultimately, they're mad at God. See, I love that. When I go out and I'm honest with people, they're not angry at me. They're angry at the God of the universe. That's, I'm there on behalf of him calling out to people, and I'm calling out to, to Christians or non Christians. Jesus is saying, look, if they get angry at you, they're not angry at you. They're angry at me. And so what do we do with this? Well, I'd say for those of you that are unbelievers in this room, (laughs) that you've never heard that gospel message before, (laughs) I would say to you, take up your cross and follow Jesus. But don't miss this. It's worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. You will not regret taking up your cross, even no matter what hatred or persecution you may experience. When we stand in front of Jesus one day in eternity, you won't sit there and go, oh, I wish my friends liked me more. You kidding me? You're like, those numbskulls? Jesus! You know, just, man, man, today repent. You are, and I'll just be honest with you, you are in rebellion against God. And he is loving you. And I hope through me, as I talk to you, what you're hearing is, is that God desperately loves you. And your problem's not government. Your problem's not education. Your problem's not your spouse. Your problem's not your kids. Your problem's not your financial condition. Your problem is you. And Jesus can change that. But I would say to you, count the cost. And so I'm not going to say with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around at your neighbor, not caring about your neighbor, just raise that hand. I'm going to say, if you want to follow Jesus, let's stand up and follow Jesus. That's what Jesus would do. I hope that I'm talking for him. Man, God help me. But for those of you that are believers in here, if you're like me, man, I feel like I fail all the time at this. I, I know sometimes I probably come across as bold to you in front of you. I'm a spiritual pansy. Man, God has been convicting me over and over again. I'm not bold in my life and how I live and my speech like I ought to be. 
And so this week I've really wrestled through just some things in my own heart. How am I supposed to become this one who Jesus talks about that lives a life in such a way that the world possibly hates or persecutes? Again, I don't need to worry about the hatred and persecution. I just need to be the man of God that God's called me to be. And so here are some of the things I've come up with, and I'll just throw them up on the screen that I've kind of done. The first one is this, and go to the next slide, please. If you have failed, understand that your lack of boldness is fear of man instead of fear of God, and that is sin. Call it what it is. And when we sin, the Bible calls us to do what? Repent. I love the fact that I can come to God and say, God, you know what? I have not been this one that's been bold for you in my life like I ought to be and repent and go the other way. In fact, in it, Jesus talks about it, Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledged me for men, I will also acknowledge before my fathers in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my fathers in heaven. If you have an ongoing reality of not choosing to stand up for Jesus, either You're in sin and you need to repent or you might not be a believer because the spirit of God in you is always going to compel you to testify about Jesus. Are you with me? Everybody with me? Now here's the great point though. I love this. And please experience grace. And I feel like sometimes after we fail, we're like, you don't have to beat yourself up. Jesus got beat up for you. And so therefore now be cleansed. Go to the next slide. First John 1, or no, no, sorry, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No, go back to that, Dietrich. I always forget Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't like Germans. My last name is Nicewanger, just so you know, I'm a German. Okay, so <laughs> listen to me, though. This is what he wrote, and this was, this was right before he was killed. Uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who protected Jews during World War II and ended up paying the price by being hung because he, he was bold and how he stood up against the Nazis. Uh, he even went so far as gr- he joined a group of people to try to assassinate uh, Hitler. I'm not saying do that. But he said this, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. Don't you love that? You will know that you're a follower of Jesus when you suffer. And again, it's not something to be proud about. It's more of that like to go, no way, look what God's done in me. The disciple is not above his master, quoting from John 15. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. But if we lose our lives in his service and carry our cross, we shall find our lives again in the fellowship of the cross with Christ. The opposite of discipleship is to be ashamed of Christ. That's the first one. Now, let's go on to grace. (laughs) 1 John 1, 9. I love this. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the more that you sit in guilt and shame because you're not bold, Satan loves you there. He's trapped you there. But the moment you come to God and you say to him, God, I acknowledge to you that it's sin, and he begins to, he then forgives you of your sins, you have now, in a unique way, dealt a blow to the evil one because you're experiencing the grace now to move forward and God's power now to move you into being bold. Go to the next slide. And after we do that, abide. Man, after I confessed my sin and I just sat there just enjoying it, I just flat out enjoyed Jesus. You will be bold in proportion to your enjoyment of Jesus. 
You enjoy Jesus little, you will be bold little. You enjoy Jesus much, you will be in bold much. That's why I always tell people, enjoy Jesus. Flat out enjoy him. And then when people walk up to you, he's the most important thing in your life. And you're like, an Amway salesman. No, <laughs> you, you, I'm kidding. You, you, you're bold because you're so excited about what God's doing. Look at the next one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer also wrote this. He said, Jesus must therefore make it clear beyond all doubt that the must of suffering applies to his disciples no less than to himself. Discipleship means adherence to the person of Jesus. Next slide. Ask. And I feel like sometimes we don't ask God, God, would you just please empower me to be bold? That's his point in John 15, 7 and 16. He says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. As if you come to God and go, God, help me be bold, proclaim your name. He's going to go, nah, I don't think so. You're on your own, homie. Man, he's going to empower us. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he says, he may give it to you. Go to the next slide. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. I believe that God can and will bring good out of evil, even out of the greatest evil. For that purpose, he needs men and women who make the best use of everything. I believe that God will give us all the strength we need to help us resist in all times of distress, but he never gives it in advance lest we should rely on ourselves and not on him alone. Don't expect to be given the boldness before. You will be given the boldness in. Well, the next slide. The last thing is, is just to say it again, like I said to those that might be unbelievers, it's worth it. It is worth it. To go to the next slide. The camp doctor who watched Dietrich Bonhoeffer be executed in the particular camp he was in, he wrote this 10 years later. At the place of execution, he, being Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again said a short prayer. Then he climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Why did he? Look what he said to his friend before he left his cell. He looked at his friend, Payne Best, before he left, and he said, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. He knew it wasn't over. He's like, you can kill me, but you kill me, I'm going to go be with Jesus. So go on, kill me. It's only going to get better. And one that I love by Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's worth it. So in it, I would say what Jesus said in this passage. We need to live lives that confront the world. We need to use language that is. But listen to me. You can't do it, which is why Terry's going to bust some Holy Spirit on us next week. Amen? Amen? Okay, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for today. We pray that your word has penetrated our hearts. God, we don't want a bunch of self-willed people trying to go confess for you. We want a bunch of spirit-empowered people that go out and live lives that demonstrate Jesus' grace and his love, but also his truth to a world that so desperately needs the message of Jesus. Father, I pray that when we're hated, we return love. When we're persecuted, we turn the other cheek. That, Father, we would understand that you have not declared a war of hate upon this world. You've declared a war of love. But, Father, would you make this group of people today bold for Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.